evening. My name is Josiah, and I, I have the privilege of serving as a youth pastor here at our church. Um, as, as we welcome you into our service, we are, uh, we are midway through the book of James in, in a sermon series of living faith, and, and it's been so good for me, but also difficult as, as every week as we go through these passages, it, it really strikes me to the core of like, as I compare my life and my living and, and my sin to the way that James exhorts us to live. And I, I hope it does the same in a way that challenges us, but also in a way that inspires a lot of grace that God has for you today. Well, <clears throat> this past week, I, uh, I was trying to deposit some cash into the ATM, and one of my bills kept getting rejected. And so out of, of frustration, I looked at the bill, and I realized that this was not an ordinary $20 bill. Uh, as I compared it to another $20 bill that was real, I realized this one was counterfeit. Uh, and, and when you look at it, um, it at, at first glance, it looks the same. But then when you start to really look into the specifics, um, you notice that the margins are off, uh, that the texture, it feels different, uh, the counterfeit one from the, from the real one. And it, and it looks like I even drew like Andrew Jackson, Walmart version on, on the $20 bill. And so um, what the U.S. Department of Treasury actually says is that there are upwards to $200 million of worth of currency circulating in our economy that's counterfeit, which equates to about roughly around 1 in 4,000 bills uh, in our economy. So by happenstance, you might come across one in your lifetime. The scary thing about counterfeits and counterfeit bills is that while our country is plagued by seemingly monopoly bill money being in our possession, um, all of our hearts, on a more urgent plane, we possess counterfeits in our hearts. We have something that promises value, but actually when you deposit it, it's really useless to you and I. And James alerts us to this kind of counterfeit that's within us when it comes to the arena of wisdom. And so in James chapter 3 today, we're going to look at what, it's, what James says of having a counterfeit wisdom as opposed to the dichotomy of having a Christ-centered wisdom. The question that James poses for you and I, and he poses a couple questions for us this morning, is he asks you, are you a wise person, or do you have wisdom? Like, not counterfeit wisdom, but true, godly, Christ-centered wisdom. And if not, what are you going to do about it? But if you do have wisdom, how will you live your life in a way that expresses that. What James is going to show us is that we can't hold on to two things at once. Like we can't hold on to counterfeit wisdom and also grasp for Christian wisdom. We have to let go of one and pursue the other. And so his invitation for you and I is can we let go of our old way of living and to come in abject humility before God and surrender to him our counterfeit wisdom and ask him to show us a way in which we can live in a way that honors him. Kind of like how I was at the ATM, are, are you maybe in a place where you are trying to navigate life, but it seems like every turn you come to, every action, every relationship is marred by bitterness or brokenness or sinfulness in any way. And perhaps like we are trying to work in a system and we're depositing the bills in our hands into life's ATM, but we're completely getting rejected because our, it's not working out. Like, life is not working out for us because we're choosing to buy into this counterfeit type of wisdom. James is a book about living faith. It's, it's about applied faith that actually works for us. 
my professors at seminary told me that James is a book about completion. When you look at the book of James, you're going to notice that there are so many things in which we are lacking. And James shows us that there are ways in which you can find completion and fulfillment, and that's through Christian living. And so he points us to his place. And here, we're going to find that we have a deficit. All of us have a deficit when it comes to wisdom. Last week's sermon from Pastor DL was, was a sermon on words. And the main thrust is words really are a symptom of what's going on in the heart. Like if our words are spewing out poison, it's because our hearts are poisonous. And similarly for us today, James is saying, if your life, the way that you live, is a way that's selfish or bitter and leading to chaos and discord, then it's because of your wisdom. That's the source. Now, the problem of poor living is found in poor wisdom. And so James 3.13 starts out the question, Right off the bat, James says, who among you has wisdom and understanding? But James isn't only interested in whether we have wisdom or not, but how we express it. Like, what do we do if we have wisdom? What do we do if we know the true and living God? Are we living out a way that is consistent with the way that God wants us to live, in a way that's loving and good and bring beauty and life to this world? So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter 3. We're going to read from verses 13 to 18. It's a quick passage, um, but we're going to look into what James talks about what wisdom means and what it means to live rightly before God. It's James, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But... If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So we have two thoughts for us today centered around wisdom, the dichotomy of wisdom. The main thrust of today's sermon is this. A life that's led by self-centeredness is a life that subscribes to counterfeit wisdom. Whereas a life that bears fruitfulness spiritually, that submits itself to God and to other people, is a life that's led by Christ-centered wisdom. And the question is, which one do you and I have? And which one will we pursue? So our first thought is this. Counterfeit wisdom is revealed by a life of self-centeredness. Counterfeit wisdom is revealed by a life of selfishness, of self-centeredness. And this is from verses 14 and 16. But before we jump into what counterfeit wisdom is, we have to kind of assess, like, what is wisdom? How does Scripture define wisdom? So wisdom is is knowing things, oftentimes that we think of, like we think wisdom is knowing things and knowing a lot, maybe having a lot of experience. What scripture defines wisdom in in the biblical sense, as Charles Spurgeon defines it, is wisdom is the right use of knowledge to inform right living. Or wisdom is living in light of what's true. That's God's truths. And to make right choices in a way in life that pleases God. So it's marrying knowledge of God with how we produce it in our lives. According to data analysts from the University of Southern California, uh, the world contains approximately 295 exabytes of information. Uh, And 
that, what that means is it's 295 followed by 20 zeros bytes of information that this world is estimated to have, our knowledge of this world. But what's interesting is that even with more and more data and more information that we have as, as civilization grows, the problems that we have are still the same. We're still killing. We're still committing crimes against one another. And so even though there's more information, we're not getting any wiser. We have so much knowledge, but it doesn't necessarily help us to live it out. The issue is not about whether we know more, but whether we are living in a way that reflects our knowledge. What good is it to know things when we can't live them out? Well, one of the highlights of my week uh, is Saturday Night Fellowship here at church. It's, it's, it's a time for our youth. And afterwards, uh, because it's, it's so close to Sunday morning, I usually sleep over on church side. And uh, the Park family is gracious to host me uh, pretty often. So Sarah Park, Daniel Park, and Esther Park are, are three of our youth students. And sometimes what um, the second child, Daniel Park, and I do to decompress after SNF is we'll play these like interesting games that Daniel comes up with. So we'll spend hours sometimes like in a typing competition and like try to figure out who can type faster. Um, sometimes we like try to see how many taps we can get on our phone in like under a minute. Um, but lately, we've been playing this game called Geotatistic. Um, and what it is, it's, if you've never heard of it, it's a fascinating game in which you and your opponent are, are playing against each other in a competition, and it shows you a, a street map view of Google Maps of some random road in this world. Okay, So there are millions of possible roads. It, it, it could be cornfields or at the beach or in the inner city. And what you can do is you have limited access to like move around and then to look in and zoom at different um, environmental clues. So there's like street signs or people or languages or um, you look at like what kind of cars there are, what kind of like yeah signs there are. So with that, you're supposed to use your knowledge of geography to ascertain two things, like where you are at and then as fast as you can. And so you drop a pin on the map, and whoever does it more accurately and more precise and faster gets more points, and then they win. Now, I, I grew up as a missionary kid, uh, and so I've been around the world. I've been over like 25 countries, and so I'm pretty confident in my robust geography. But Daniel is not your typical teenager, okay? So while his peers are playing Valorant, Daniel spends his pastime on his iPad looking at Google Maps, right? And just like, not only in Orlando, which is crazy, but he looks at like major U.S. cities and across the world. And that's how he spends his time, or look, looking at weather patterns or traffic patterns. And so I'm faced, like I'm, like I'm going to lose every time. And so when I lose to Daniel and the frustration and shame builds in and it's not decompressing, the only thought that really keeps, lets me sleep at night is like, I just think, like, Daniel, you don't even know how to drive, okay? And so... Like, what good, is, like, what good is knowledge, Daniel, if, uh, if you can't go there, you know? And that's kind of the question, the truth that, that James asks for us, right? Like, you, you have knowledge of something, but what good is it if you don't live it out, if you can't experience it, like the fruits of its rewards and its effects? But what's key here that James is not throwing out, like, the baby with the bathwater, and it's not an extreme, it's not only knowledge or only experience living or wisdom. He's asking us to balance both in a healthy diet. And so the question is, like, you cannot have wisdom without having fear of God. And you can't have fear of God without knowing who God is. And so the question then becomes, like, do we know God? Do we know about God or, or, or do we truly know who God is? 
Who he is sets the right trajectory for our wisdom, our right living. And it starts there. I think a lot of times with our youth, I, I invite them, I encourage them, like we have to read the word, not just to win in Bible trivia, but so that we can know who God is. And a lot of times, like our Bibles sit in the corners collecting dust as our Instagram feeds are refreshing. But the question is, like, do we take the time to truly know the living God of this universe? And so that leads us to the first wisdom that this world proffers, and that's counterfeit wisdom. What's interesting is that James in this passage doesn't command us about, give us commands or imperatives about wisdom. Like, do this to be wise. What he says instead is, this is a description of two kinds of people. One who buys into counterfeit wisdom and one who buys into Christ-centered wisdom. Proverbs 14, 16 picks up on this, and it says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And that's kind of what counterfeit wisdom does. It seems right for us in a way to live, but in the end, it actually leads to death. And so counterfeit wisdom, we're just going to do some looking into what the text offers us today. And what we see for counterfeit wisdom in verse 15, that there are three sources about, from counterfeit wisdom, two traits, and one outcome. And there's a beautiful pattern that James sets up. It's like an underhand pitch that we can just see for this one and Christ and wisdom. So firstly, the sources. Like, where does counterfeit wisdom come from? Three places. It's earthly, James says. It's unspiritual, and it's even demonic. So breaking that down, earthly, what he means by that is just what we see in our reality is the highest view of reality that we can just believe. Like, this is, like what we see here is, is it. This is what matters the most, and that's it. And what God teaches us is that, no, there's a reality, there's a spiritual realm, there's God's advancement of his kingdom that matters more than even this life that we have here. So it's not keeping the eternity in perspective. Unspiritual means not allowing God to do his work and for his spirit to move. It's removing God from the equation of life. It's removing him completely and his work. And lastly, demonic. It's inspired by the enemy, the spiritual enemy, by demons. It's influenced by Satan. And so we see this triad, actually, it's picked up a lot in Scripture. It's known as the unholy trinity. Uh, in 1 John 2.16 and Ephesians 2.1-3, it's, it's also known as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's three things that constantly bombard us and affect us in our, in our way of living, and it tempts us to sin internally, externally, materially, and spiritually. It's always there. So those are three sources, but there are two traits that James is offering us to self-test. And he's asking us, if, look at your life, and if, if it follows these two traits, then maybe you're buying into counterfeit wisdom. So the first one is selfish ambition. And what this is is like the ambition that we have to advance ourselves, the me agenda. It's believing that, like, I'm not powerful enough that I deserve or I should, I should be in this or that position, but I'm not. And it's pushing yourself first over anyone or everyone else. It's thinking first and foremost for number one, and that's you. The second one is bitter envy. And this one's tricky. So um, I, I really, like, lately I've been struggling a lot with just the sin of envy and jealousy. And there, when I see, like, some friends who, like, buy the newest things, it makes me, like, a little sad because I wanted to. Uh, and it's that, like, just, it's that age-old problem of, like, keeping up with the Joneses. And um, what Pastor Deal was helpful to explain was, like, the difference between jealousy and envy is this. Like, jealousy is 
wanting and coveting what someone else has, maybe materially or even in the form of a relationship. But envy is almost a little step further. It's saying, I want what they have at the expense of them not having it. And it's taking glee and rooting for their loss or their demise. So it's, it's even a little bit more vengeful and personal. This bitterness is a poison we drink when we want to inflict pain on someone else. So those are two traits that we have to, kind of to continually assess ourselves. Like, am I, a selfish, am I driven by selfish ambition or bitter envy in this life? Well, what's the outcome? James says there's one, out, there's one outcome, and there's chaos in every evil practice. It's disorder. So if we live this way pridefully um, and advancing just our own agenda, if all of us do that in community, then we're looking at, we're, it's a dog-eat-dog world. We're looking out for number one at the expense of everyone else. Everyone else becomes a means to serve our ends. And every evil practice is a breeding ground that bears fruit after that. So you can imagine the chaos that follows if we lived in this way. There's a, uh, there's a classic movie that I grew up loving to watch uh, from the year 1987. Uh, it's called The Untouchables. Um, and it, what it does, it's, it's a kind of fictional movie, but it follows the true story of um, the life of a federal agent named Elliot Ness, who is tasked to come to Chicago in the 1930s during the, during the Prohibition era to take down the gang lord um, and the notorious... Uh, leader Al Capone. Al Capone was, at this time, so alcohol was banned. It was illegal across the country. And so what he was doing was he was controlling Chicago's and its vicinity's um, sale of liquor. Not only that, but he was also killing and murdering anyone who got in his way. And because he was so powerful, he bought out the entire Chicago Police Department. And so as Elliot Ness is coming into the city to take care of Capone, he starts to make raids onto the liquor uh, storehouses, but once he arrives, he realizes that everything's gone and packed up because the police had already tipped off Capone of his coming. And so frustrated by the futility of his task force, he decides to look externally to find help. So he meets this man named Jimmy Malone, who is a retired cop who can be trusted because he's not bought out by Capone. And so in the movie, they're sitting in the pews of this church, and Elliot Ness is at his wit's end. He, he looks to Malone, uh, and he's like, what do I do? Like, I want to get Capone by any legal means necessary. How do I get him? And so Malone looks at Ness, and he tells him, you want to get Capone? This is how you get Capone. He comes at you with a knife. You come at him with a gun. He puts one of yours in the hospital. You put one of his in the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And I think what's interesting about that is that we live in that kind of Chicago way when it comes to counterfeit wisdom. You see, if, if we lived and we adopted this sort of Chicago way in which it's tit for tat, but also raising and escalating it, this is the kind of chaos that breeds that James is talking about. Like, it's the kind of chaos that comes when we are looking out for number one. We're just going to fight each other and then push for quarreling. And that, James is going to talk about this in the next chapter. Quarreling comes because we are fighting for ourselves. Are we living life by the wisdom of the Chicago way? Like, are we living in a way that which we are subjugating other people around us so that we can elevate ourselves? What needs to change in our lives? What James is showing is like, if your life is producing chaos and discord and every evil practice under the sun, 
then it's good to work backwards. Then ask yourself, do I have these two traits of selfish ambition and bitter envy? And if so, then where are the sources in my life that are contributing most to these traits? If this is the way that we've been working, this is the operating system that we're going under, then it's time for an overhaul, James is saying. But this type of overhaul of a system doesn't come immediately. It doesn't come overnight. It takes a lifelong process of us surrendering ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so it leads us to a place where we find out a better kind of wisdom, a truer wisdom, and that's Christ-centered wisdom. So the second thought we have today is Christ-centered wisdom is revealed by a life of fruitfulness. Christ-centered wisdom is revealed by a life of fruitfulness. And this is from verses 13 and then also 17, 18. So let me read that again for us just as a reminder. Verse 13, James asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And then skipping down to 17, 18. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What's interesting, if you look at verse 13, is, is James asks, like, who is wise? And it's demonstrated by someone who lives a good life. Uh, in, the, in the text, that was, the language that was written of this, Greek, uh, of this New Testament was Greek. And there are two words in Greek that signify what good means. Uh, one definition of good uh, refers to the moral uprightness, like being morally upright, being a good person that we would normally associate with. But the second definition of good refers to something that means lovely or beautiful or life-giving. And James is using that second this definition here. He's saying the life of a wise person brings life and beauty and flourishing to the lives around them. That's how you can know and that's how you can test and see if your life is ruled by Christ-centered wisdom, is if it's bringing life and beauty to those around you. The source, so for Christ-centered wisdom, Paul also outlines a source, traits, and an outcome. And so there's one source eight traits, and one outcome as a result. Um, Psalm 111.10 states that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So a lot of our youth students ask, like, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It has a very negative connotation with fear. So to describe it more simply, um, fearing the Lord doesn't mean you're being scared of the Lord. Uh, But it means being in awe and reverence and having a deep respect for what the Lord can do and who he is especially. And that's where it starts. That's where wisdom begins. It says in verse, uh, verse 17 that the wisdom that comes from God, it comes from heaven. It comes down to us in the form of a gift. Wisdom is knowing who God is and that he loves you and I unconditionally. It's having God as the ultimate standard of truth. It's running away from this moral relativism where it's like a you-do-you kind of world or everyone for themselves, or to each their own. If we do away with God as the moral arbiter of truth, then we end up interpreting and defining our own versions of what truth and what living, right living is. And so the, that's the source of wisdom. The source of wisdom comes from a fear of the Lord, a right fear of the Lord. And the eight traits that are, I'm just going to describe them briefly, eight characteristics of Christian wisdom. First of all, it's pure which means like there's a cleanliness before God. There's no imperfections of any sort. It's 
morally reliable. Um, there's an absence of sinful motives and actions. Second is peace-loving or peace-promoting. It doesn't mean peace at all costs uh, if there's not a wise place to have reconciliation, but it means leaning in and having a propensity to always offer forgiveness, to seek reconciliation in broken relationships. Third, it means considerate, or in other translations it says gentle. That means not being harsh or abrasive with our words or actions. Submissive is the fourth one, or open to reason. So being able to listen, being teachable, being receptive. Number five is compassionate and merciful. Mercy is God's favor shown to those who don't deserve it. And those who receive God's mercy are able to live as more merciful. Number six, it says displays like God's spirit of his fruits. Number seven, impartial, means you're not vacillating, you're consistent, you're not showing favoritism. And lastly, sincere or unhypocritical. And this one's probably the most challenging one for the church today. Um, the, the Greek kind of phrase that goes along with this, the imagery is um, not having wax with the pots. So back in those days when people sold some pots, sometimes they would form cracks. And so what the sellers would do to hide the cracks is they would put wax over, over the top to hide the imperfections. And what this means is like you're not having wax to hide the imperfections. You're being sincere about who you are as a broken pot. And the biggest reason why people leave the church that we see is because of hypocrisy. When the church says, like, we should do or we should live this way, but we don't live this way. And so this is one of the biggest challenges for the church. But if we look at these eight characteristics, and I look at them, and I'm just like, I don't hold a flame to having these. Like, I'm not, I don't think my life is dominated or it's consistently expressing these eight traits. Maybe one or two at times, but... Like, this is like a tall order. So who can live up to the standard of wisdom? Well, James has an answer for us soon. But the last thing that happens is a harvest of righteousness as the outcome. Like, as a result of living, having this wisdom, you produce a lot of good works. And in Ephesians 2 talks about this where he says, he says Paul says, you were saved to do good works. Like, we were saved not because of our, our upright living or good works, but we were saved to be transformed so that we can do good works to bring God's peace and his restoration to this world. So this is, like, this is tough. I think it's tough for us to see what the law says. What James says is, is what right living is. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle with living this way. Like This is living to perfection. And none of us can do that on a consistent basis. And so what, Paul, or what James is saying is that Yes, this is like what this requires is living with excellence, like living without flaws. And and God like promotes this. He says in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. He calls us to live in a way that pleases him. But how can we do so when we're so sinful? Well, one of my favorite actors uh, is Ethan Hawke. And in an interview uh, on YouTube, he was asked about one of his early uh, films with Peter Ware, a director who filmed, uh, who made Dead Poet Society which is a big classic for many people. What Ethan Hawke said is, in a really fascinating quote, he talks about the attention to detail that's required to master a craft and to produce a, masterful, a master, masterpiece. He talked about Peter Ware, who, who explained to him the difference between good and great. And Peter Ware said the difference between good and great is just the one twist of the screw. But it's the last and it's the hardest one to do. It's that, uh, it's that like, 
that tension and that pulling. It's so much rehearsal, so much thought to go into the tiniest gesture that ultimately has to look spontaneous. Peter was showing us what excellence looked like. When I got to work with Denzel Washington, I found an actor who cared about this, who really thought it mattered whether the cup faced this way or that way. He explained it as like a sailboat. Every true moment, every beautiful thing, every honest thought puts wind in the sails. But every cheat, every lie, every fake moment, that leads to a little tear. And you can sustain some of them. You can still have wind in the sails to push your boat with some tears. But if you want to make something like The Godfather, or you want to write a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, there has to be no tears. I found this the hard way. When I was at UVA in my undergraduate years, I worked for three years in the research lab uh, at the med school with a pulmonologist. And we were working on long-term effects of smoking, cigarette smoking, on patients with, who had COPD. So one of my year-long projects was uh, really fascinating. I still, like, even though I did it, like, I still understand how it works, but it just works somehow. Uh, we took human bronchial epithelial cells, so human lung cells, that were frozen for eight years. And our task was to grow them in a petri dish and multiply it so we can test drugs onto these cells. Now, our goal was to multiply the cells, then isolate it, and then to quantify it, the genes, and to look for specific reactions to different drugs. But everything had to be perfect leading up to this. I mean, this is eight years of being frozen in a freezer, tens of thousands of dollars that was like endowed to this junior in college. Um, and so what I had to do was I had to walk to the lab at school four times a week. So every two days, I would come into the lab at the same time, same hour, as best as I could for consistency and for standardization. I would take the cells out of their really expensive uh, CO2 refrigerator that was kept at 37 degrees Celsius exactly, put on gloves and mask up, and then take them under a hood with a vent and then I would pour out the medium that they were in, the liquid that they were in, and I would change the liquid so that they could be fed, and then they would grow and observe their growth under a microscope. This was every two days for three months that I was going at this rate. It was approximately 100 trips. And it, like, I, I really felt like an attachment to these cells. I was like, these are like my kids. I was pouring so much work into this. And... Words cannot even begin to describe the appall and the dread I had when I, one day I looked in the microscope and I was looking at these, these cells and I see this branch looking, branch type looking thing and it has like arms, like not physical arms, but it has like, you know, extensions and I'm just like horrified because what had gone into the petri dish was like a, a fungal hydra and that was contamination and there's no one else to blame except myself, right? What happened was, Somehow, by some carelessness, after three months of hard work, maybe I breathed too hard into the petri dish, maybe my clothes got stuck or some dust got into, from my skin got onto the petri dish, but somehow that got contaminated. And that was three months of work down the drain, tens of thousands of dollars lost. So, uh, <laughs> maybe that explains why I'm here. Uh, the one <laughs> Think about what Ethan Hawke has to say about excellence, Right? I mean, so what James is kind of like, what he's, what he's looping in is like, you could know, you could have the finest method acting. You could go to the finest acting institution in this world. You can know the script at the back of your hand, but unless you're put, willing to put in the work like Peter Ware or Denzel Washington, you're not going to produce a masterpiece. Or like a 
like an inexperienced uh, junior lab student, you can know all the right safety protocols that you're supposed to take. But unless you like, live it out to perfection, you're going to have fungal hydra in your petri dish. And so when we live in, in this life, we, like, we live the Christian life, like, there are 613 commandments in Scripture, and, it, and all of them call us to live a certain way that pleases God. And whenever we don't, there's sin that abounds. And it's so hard, I think, like, for me, like, the crushing weight of, like, condemnation, like, I don't live up to the standard that God wants. I, I don't live, I have fungal hydra in my Petri dish. Like, what is, what is James, like, how does James expect us to live this way? He doesn't even live this way. But what James is saying is, yeah, look, first of all, these illustrations help to show that, one, like, knowledge alone doesn't suffice. You have to live it out to the T in order to produce the right thing. But second of all, it shows us that the law, these, these traits show us that, like, we're going to fall short every day. And it's, what, what's interesting that James shows us about counterfeit wisdom and Christ-centered wisdom and these traits that's really interesting is that none of these traits are ever exposed in isolation. They're always exposed in relationships. And that's one of the key parts to wisdom, is right living is really the hardest, and it's exposed the most when we do life with other people, in community, in relationships. So how do we, how do you, how do I stack up with these eight character traits? Are we producing a life of fruitful harvest of righteousness? If not, then are we living and are we dominated by counterfeit wisdom? So the litmus test for wisdom is relationships. And the reason why is because relationships free us from the crushing weight of self-accountability, where we live in this echo chamber of constantly just listening to what I think is best and maybe even being around the people who believe the same things I do. But in relationship, and especially in the church, with the church ideal community should be that Jesus has set up is that we come together with so many different kinds of people from all different types of generations and tongues and backgrounds. And so, yes, we're going to rub shoulder, like, we're going to rub together. We're going to have differences. But it helps us to keep it accountable because not only am I able to practice living out God, the knowledge of who God is, but I get to see my brothers and sisters in community also live that out as well. And so the question then becomes, like, as a church, as Harvest Church, in your house churches, in our family groups for youth students, are we living out Christ-centered wisdom in our relationships? Or are our relationships more marked by selfishness and envy? And that's the question that James poses us today. Like, it's not just about you. It's also about you in the context of community. And so how do we get wisdom? Like, how do we find it? And this is where James's answer is, is actually a little bit more surprising. A lot of us, like, we're in this age where we get things like one-click shopping on Amazon Prime. But wisdom is not like that. Wisdom is not something you order. It's not a 12-step journey or it's not a 12-step group. It's not a field manual where you can acquire it. Wisdom is something that you have to receive as a gift. And that's, so there are three things that James just in he implies for us that we can, how we can find wisdom. First is, as we explained earlier, knowledge of God. Like, do you know God for who he is? Are you, like, really going deep into his word that he has given you to find who God is? Because the more that we stay away from the word, the more our pride inflates. The more that we think we are the gods of our own universe. The second way is to receive wisdom as a gift. 
And the great thing about a gift is the gift is free and it comes at no strings attached, no transaction that's required. When God gives a gift, he gives it freely. And the next chapter we'll see that James says the reason why you don't have wisdom is because you don't even ask for it. And so the question is, like, are we asking God, like, God, would you grant me wisdom? Would you help me to see life more as you see it, to live life in a way that pleases you? When's the last time that we prayed, like, God, I'm living, I'm frustrated. Like, I, I live so sinfully. I live as a hypocrite. I live, like, two lives, three lives, four lives. Like, would you help me, Lord, to live in a way that pleases you? When was the last time we asked God, God, help me to live with Christ-centered wisdom, in a wisdom that reflects knowledge of you? And the third thing, third step that James invites us to do is to demonstrate wisdom in community. That's in your house, church, in your family groups, in our church, to practice good works, to fail when we try to do good works, to repent, to grow as a result. And that's what humility is. It's knowing, as some of our youth students say it, that you're not the main character. That God's the main character to your story. And you're just, we're just, we get to be involved in that process. He's the author. He authors us into it. So that's what humility is when we come to our community, is we have to adopt and espouse this humility that C.S. Lewis talks about. It's, it's, humility is not like modesty, like or false modesty. Humility comes in the form of knowing who God is and knowing who we are as a result. It's not thinking less of ourselves, as C.S. Lewis puts it. It's thinking of ourselves less. So it's thinking of others more than ourselves. That's the kind of wisdom that leads to Christ's exaltation and self-honesty. Wisdom doesn't just come down as a gift, however, to us to receive intangibly. Wisdom himself came to this earth 2,000 years ago. You see, when When Jesus saw that we weren't living the right way, God the Father sent his one and only Son because he loved this world so that whoever believed in him would have eternal life for you and I. He saw that we lived in a way that didn't reflect knowledge of him, and we lived in a way that was counterfeit. And so Jesus came, and not only did he come to offer it, but he demonstrated it perfectly. You see, when Jesus started off his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus More than anything, he was tempted in the wilderness by three things. It was the world, materialism. It was the weakness of his flesh, and it was the devil who was tempting him. And he faced those temptations, the three sources of counterfeit wisdom, and he overcame it. And what Jesus did was he lived on this earth. He lived this life perfectly, never sinning, never making a mistake, not only for himself because he cannot sin as God, but for your sake and my sake, because we have lived lives and we will live lives that are marked by sin and wrongdoing. And what Jesus did as he went to the cross in perfect obedience, living life completely in awe and view of God and submission to him, was he lives a life that you and I could not live. And so the perfect life that James demands is not a life that we're bound to because we have to measure up to it. Jesus already lived that life for you and I. And so we just have to receive that perfect life that Jesus lived and say, Jesus, I can't live a life that's perfect. I can't live up to these traits that you ask me to. But I know your son did. I know you did, Jesus, for me. And so I receive you as someone who, does, who paid that price for me. When you died upon the cross, you paid for my sins once and for all. 
That's the wisdom that Jesus lived. He's all of those traits and more. He's a wisdom that enables us to live in a way that pleases God. So the question I, that James asks that we just end with is, will you live from here on out? Will we strive to live? Yes, we'll make mistakes, but will you strive to live in a way that pleases God, that seeks to move his heart? Like everything, like God, I just want everything I do, every word I say, every thought I have, every action I take, I, I, every relationship I have with a person, I, I pray, Lord, would it help me to please you? Not for myself, not for my own selfish gain, but for your will to, to bring your love to this world. So let's pray just in closing. And I invite you to pray with me and just to consider and reflect. Like, what are these, what are these wisdoms that James proffers that you subscribe to? Is your life dominated by counterfeit wisdom? And if so, I think that's all of us, then, then we have to be honest and then come to the only place where we can escape counterfeit wisdom is to repent and to ask God, God, I, I need a different way to live. I need a different operating system. The way my life is working is not working out. I need a way in which I can live for you, in which true goodness flows through me by your love and your peace and your kindness. And so, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that it's in your word that we find freedom, that there is a law that demands perfection, but in a way you Though you have demanded it from us to live in a way that pleases you, you knew that we couldn't. And so in your infinite wisdom, you sent wisdom to us in the form of Jesus Christ to live a life that we could not live. And so it could be imparted to us when we receive you as a gift. So Lord, help us in our living and in our relationships, Lord, that we will not falter, but help us to cling to you, to turn to you, to ask you for strength, for wisdom, to live this life. We pray, Lord, as we sing to you, would you do a work of transformation in our hearts? Transform our hearts so that we can love you and we can know that you love us unconditionally and that we can live for you as a result. Help us to please you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.